millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Was this the week Lester won the league? No, it's only February, but after two key wins leave the Foxes five clear, Claudio Ranieri's team has control of the Premier League's title race. We'll talk about the leaders' trip to the Etihad, Spurs and Arsenal trying to stay close, as well as intrigue further down the table, Saints' surge, Liverpool's walkout, and the battle of wounded giants at Stamford Bridge. Welcome everybody to this edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. Round 25 of the Premier League season is in the books, and at least at the top of the league, we're starting to see some rhyme and some reason. Leicester has a five-point gap, but there's also a six-point gap between fourth and fifth place. Are we finally starting to get some clarity in what's been a very confusing Premier League season? Let's ask our co-host Kartik Krishnair. And Kartik, what do you think? Those gaps I mentioned hint there's some more certainty as far as the title and Champions League races are concerned. But are you buying those hints? Are you any more certain about how the league will play out? I am more certain now about how the league will play out than I was a week ago. Yes. Mm. No question. Okay, so why don't we start at the top? We're going to get to Leicester City, break that down in a minute, but just at the top. Leicester, five-point lead. Do you think it's time for everybody to just, just let their doubts drift away with this team? Yeah, the table doesn't lie at this point, okay? They've had their swoons. They've had a few injuries, not nothing substantial. But but, but, but they're not experienced, Kartik. They've never been here before. Right, but they have a fantastic team, team spirit. We can make that case about Spurs also. They've, mm. they've never been here before. And we can make the case about Arsenal. They haven't won the league with right. this group. And, and they have a very young person. With Arsenal, we could make that case. No, I, I if you look individually at how each member of that team is performing in in their role, in the setup that Ranieri has, has created for them. And, and look, th- this run, which started under Nigel Pearson a year ago, and we can talk about that a little bit and, and how last season played out, began about a year ago. This, this is uh, now, uh, there's basically 38 games of evidence that this is a good team. This is a very good team. Hmm. So I don't see any reason why people continue to think, and I'm still seeing some doubts. They're less than they were a week ago, less than they were three weeks weeks ago, obviously, but to, to think that this team's going to fall out of the top four. I, to me, there's no way they're falling out of the top four. They are cemented in a Champions League place. They have a 12-point lead on fifth-place Manchester United, beyond the fact that, as you said, for about a year now, they've played better than Manchester United. So it's not only that they have to give those 12 points back to United, they have to be passed by four teams, three other teams in addition to Manchester United. It's the fact that every piece of evidence we have 
says that they are a better team, including the result on Saturday at the Etihad. Leicester City scoring in the third minute through Robert Huth, who scored a second goal in the 60th minute. By that time, Riyad Mahrez had scored. Sergio Aguero getting a consolation goal to make the scoreline look a little better than the actual play on the field. 3-1 win for the Foxes. Kartik, let's start with Leicester first, because there's going to be a lot to talk about with Manchester City too, but let's give the Foxes their due. I thought this was a great performance by them. Yeah, they were all over Manchester City. And I, the general consensus, even from Manchester City supporters, and these are the sorts of supporters I see on message boards after games making excuses, blaming referees, uh, blaming injuries. Uh, the general consensus, we were we were uh, well done by Leicester, and 3-1 is a flattering scoreline for Manchester City. Um, these are the same types of people who are saying the 4-1 against Spurs and the 4-1 against Liverpool were basically phony scorelines. So uh, that kind of gives you the, the the view that Leicester were all over Manchester City in this match. They were up for the occasion. Rainier had obviously drilled into them after that victory against Liverpool on Tuesday. Quick turnaround, but the importance of this game, the importance of, of scoring early and getting on top of Manchester City. We've seen Manchester City have to chase games all season just a few weeks ago falling behind West Ham within a minute at uh, the bowling ground they chased that game back but Mm -hmm. Leicester hasn't given up a lead all season right if Leicester gets ahead in a game they, they they either win or draw generally win and the game was essentially over with that goal um by Robert Huth after a wonderful move by Mares. You don't give Mares that kind of space to operate mm-hmm. uh, and get the ball on his left foot. Kolarov had no choice but to foul him at that point. Otherwise, yeah. he's in and he's setting up Vardy or Okazaki for a goal. Uh, masterful game plan from Leicester, and it just all went from there. Mares was brilliant. I And honestly, Richard, this might seem like hyperbole. When do we start talking about Mares as one of the best wide players, one of the best wingers in world football, because he's got to be there. You've got to, you've got to put him up there with the, the, the top, uh, uh, wide players. Yeah. That's a great question. My instinct says that we can add it. We can talk about it with a caveat. We can say at his best because Mara's had two or three really good months to start the season. And then two months after some, some injuries, I think, or some, some small knocks where he was even coming off the bench for a little bit where he wasn't his normal self. And we were starting to ask the questions, well, can Lester maintain this with Mares and Vardy starting to regress a little bit and come back to their mean? And then this weekend, we see Mares as one of the stars of that match. So maybe we can say at his best, Mares is as dangerous a wide to end player in the world. And we just have to wait for that little bit more of consistency to see if he can take his career from going from somebody who was hopping from France to uh, the second division in England to now somebody who's one of the best players in England. See if he can go from that to somebody who is consistently a star player. But, uh, you know, you mentioned that um, where he beat Kolarov and Delph really early to set up that first goal. And then he provided the assist on that goal, too. I think we should come back to that because I think that moment said a lot about how Pellegrini was set up for the game. But even in those first moments for Leicester, in the whole first half, in the whole game, it was an interesting... It was an interesting comment on the importance of that tactics, so to speak, or what tactics really are important. We, over the last five years, have seen so many people talk about formations and uh, different variations of that, the use of style, the the prominence of the possession game now. Lester reminds us of some more basic things, Kartix, the value of just running your ass off, the value of believing in what you were doing, the value of execution, and the value of winning those one-on-one battles, so many of which were apparent on Mars's goal. It's really just a back-to-basics approach by Ranieri that has Lester pulling off this fairy tale. Yeah, Craig uh, 
Craig Burley this past week on ESPN had said uh, for the program we get here in the States, I think you, you can get that globally, but probably not in the UK. Uh, but Craig Burley, who's now in the in the States, obviously used to be a co-commentator on Sky for many years for Premier League games. Burley said that flat out this week when after the Liverpool match that we've been hearing about inverted wingers and overloaded midfields and uh, all of these tactical nuances that managers have introduced in the last five to seven years in in world football, what Rainieri has done is gone back to basics, put out his best team and highlighted one-on-one matchups and basically told uh, Albrighton, you're going to, you, you're, you're going to be matched up with this guy, beat him one-on-one. Mares, same thing. Uh, Vardy run into this space, very basic tactics, but he, he's still done a good job of managing the team. Well, we know he's done a great job managing the team, but one of the reasons he's done a good job, as Burley said, was because he has put the players in those one-on-one matchups in a position where they can succeed, knowing uh, the, the opposition and, and setting up to ma- maximize potential for success. It's been a triumph for the whole organization so far. The people who have made the decisions to bring in players like Fuchs and Okazaki and Conte, and then you have players who are already there that are performing so well. Casper Schmeichel, Wes Morgan, Robert Huth, Jamie Vardy, of course, Riyad Mahrez, of course. It's it's just a pleasure to watch for so many reasons. And I think that's the context for Manchester City. The result, the bottom line was really bad. And we expect a team with the talent that Manuel Pellegrini has to perform better. I don't think this was necessarily a catastrophic performance on their part, Kartik. I think they just a performance that shows that they probably aren't up to the title challenge this year. No, it wasn't a catastrophic performance, but what it was is this was a big game. This wasn't, no offense, but this wasn't Sunderland at home or a trip to St. James Park to play Newcastle. This was a match against the league leaders. I don't care that's Leicester City and not Chelsea or Manchester United. It was the league leaders coming into the weekend with a three-point cushion over you and you're sitting second. You have to raise your game to that level because you know they're going to. They've gotten to the top of the table for a reason. And Manchester City's inability to go to another gear, another gear that we've seen them repeatedly go to in these sorts of matches, is a a cause for concern. And I think ultimately two factors here. One, the managerial change that we've kind of suspected is coming, but now we officially all know it's coming. Some of the players on this Manchester City team thinking, well, this is going to be my last hurrah anyway with this this side. Maybe we can win the League Cup final against Liverpool, and then it's all she wrote. It's it's, it's not my show anymore. And I think the second thing is just the aging aging of the squad. The squad looks a little bit like Chelsea did a few seasons ago before Jose Mourinho Mm. came back. Aging, kind of trying to get the last uh, run out of guys like Drogba and guys like Florent Maluda even and Ashley Cole and Frank Lampard. It's beginning... Yaya Torre and and David Silva in particular exemplify this. And the spine of the Manchester City side, and I think this is important, uh, Bergeristan is one of the reasons why Pep has chosen Manchester City over Chelsea or Manchester United, his relationship with Bagheeristan and Soriano. Mm-hmm. But since Bagheeristan has been the director of football, I would say the only consistently successful core player Manchester City has signed is Fernandinho, who was okay again uh, in this game, had a lot of ground to cover and was maybe put in uh, a tough position as far as uh, his responsibilities for this match. That core of Silva, Aguero, Torre, company, Kolarov, uh, obviously Joe Hart was an inherited player, Zabaleta, all bought under the previous regime that ran the club, uh, whether it be manager Roberto Mancini or um, director of football Brian Marwood. So 
I think that the squad is aged, and it wasn't bought by this this brass, and it's probably going to get blown up over the summer. Very interesting. Well, we'll see how that happens. Obviously, big changes are going to happen at the Etihad, uh, whether that involves just the technical staff or it also involves the playing squad. Uh, let's talk about some of Manuel Pellegrini's decisions. The decision to play Fabian Delphin, kind of that center-left role that we have seen from him uh, often since he's gotten healthy. I don't think many people had a problem with that because of the presence of Riyad Mahrez. The one thing that you and I talked about before the show and that just dawned on me uh, throughout that whole first half where City City really didn't generate very many good chances is it it just seemed like they were short an attacker, Kartik. We're used to seeing City play with one or two forwards and then two or three attacking midfielders. And it, when you drop this formation on paper, you could count Yaya Toure amongst the attackers, but that really Function, functionally was not his role, at least in the first half on Saturday. What we saw was Aguero isolated, uh, Raheem Sterling apparently supposed to bridge that gap, David Silva having to fall back to right midfield in the defensive phase and then make that uh, space up in the attacking phase. And it just did not seem to work. Kartikit put all of those guys in situations where they had to win their individual battles every time and get help from their teammates to put them in good positions. And against a Leicester team that has thrived on winning those individual battles, it seemed like a losing plan. Yeah, and obviously Pellegrini hamstrung by not having Jesus Navas, Kevin De Bruyne, or Samir mm. Nasri due to injury. That having been said... It was still a situation where he had to he he had to put Delph where he put him, and I I don't find that a odd decision at all because of Mares. So mm-hmm. you have to play him a little further out left to account for the danger man for the other side, which meant that Yaya Torre had more responsibility as a two way player than he normally would. <laughs> Because Delph is not covering that space. That's a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe for disaster. So maybe the one change he could have made was not start Torre at all and play Fernandinho further higher up the pitch and play Fernando behind him. Yeah, maybe. I guess I I also wonder if maybe just go to a straight kind of conventional four four two and put Iannaccio in there. Um, yeah, that would have been the other option. Yeah, right? and instead and of trying might, to rely that on probably them, would have worked better. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't think Leicester were going to lose this game or even draw this game, regardless the way they played. But it probably would have made it less ugly. And, and again, the scoreline, as even Manchester City supporters are saying, it flatters Manchester City. It was a uh, very one sided match. Yeah, I, this goes back to what we were talking about a couple seconds ago. You can talk about the tactics all you want, but if your players are going to lose the type of one-on-one battles that we saw Conte and Mares win on that second goal, you're probably not going to win the game regardless of the brilliance of your plan. The one other thing that I want to mention with City before we get to the rundown is we have seen this constantly ever since Vince, Vincent Company got injured. The inability of their center backs to win one-on-one battles, whether it be on set pieces as we saw Martin Dimichelis come up short twice on Saturday, or in open play where we constantly see Nicola Otamendi come up short, and he did on the second goal. To me, Kartik, this is why I am so definitive about saying City doesn't look like a title contender. Company is starting to return to training. We don't know when he's actually going to be back. We don't know for how long he'll be back before injuring his calf again. With so many uncertainties in their central defense, I just wonder why they've allowed their squad to be in this position where they're relying on two guys that can't win one-on-one battles. Yeah, and also, um, as what's also prominently discussed on the city message boards last night, Mangala supposedly had a knock in training, and now he's been out a month. So uh, (laughs) he obviously would have been a massive upgrade over those two guys, just from the one-on-one standpoint. And he's a player I think is going to benefit, even though he's been frustrating in his city career thus far. Mm -hmm. He's he's the player I can say, maybe besides Samir Nasri, that's going to benefit the most from Pep Guardiola coming in. Maybe we don't give 
Pellegrini credit for this because he ultimately didn't do it, but he realized he had this problem coming into this this Titanic showdown with Lester, and he was very actively considering playing Bakari Sanya, who is a small <laughs> guy but quick and, and understands his positioning as a center back instead of either Dean McAllister or Otamendi because he knew the one-on-one battles and the quickness and that sort of thing. He needed a more tenacious defender and a defender with a good sense of positioning but also closing speed, and he doesn't have that with either Otamendi and Dean McHale. So he thought about doing it. Ultimately, he didn't, and it cost him. Well, we spent a lot of time on this one game, more time than we usually spend on any single game over the weekend, but it was one versus two. It did involve the story of the season, Leicester City, and it did involve the league-leading team going from a two-point gap to now having a firm grip on first place in the English Premier League. But elsewhere, on Sunday and Saturday at Anfield, where a 77th-minute fan protest was poised to steal the headlines, but with Jurgen Klopp hospitalized with an appendicitis, Sunderland came back from a two-goal deficit, scoring twice late to take a 2-2 draw from Liverpool. Newcastle got a goal from Alexander Mitrovic and became the sixth team this season to hold West Brom without a shot on target, winning 1-0 at St. James's Park. Everton pounced on Stoke early and often, winning 3-0 at the Britannia, and early Gilfie Sigurdsson goal was equalized by Scott Dan as Crystal Palace got a 1-1 at Swansea. Tottenham dominated the game, if not the scoreline, in a 1-0 win over visiting Watford. Aston Villa continued flaming their embers of hope with a 2-0 win over Norwich. Southampton scored early, lost a man, then held on to beat visiting West Ham 1-0. On Sunday, Arsenal scored goals in the 23rd and 24th minutes to claim a 2-0 win at Bournemouth, and Chelsea got a stoppage time goal from Diego Costa to draw, visiting Manchester United 1-1. With round 25 in the books, Leicester has breathing room at the top. Their 50.3 points leave them 5 clear of Spurs and Arsenal, both on 48, with Manchester City now 4th, another point back. United's missed opportunity at Stamford Bridge leaves them six points off the Champions League pace with West Ham and Southampton in the league's next two spots. At the bottom of the table, Aston Villa is up to 16 points, though that's still eight from safety. Sunderland, having gotten their point from Anfield, is in 19th place with 20 points, while Norwich, losers of five in a row, have fallen into the bottom three. They're 23 points, one fewer than Newcastle United. When we return, we'll jump back to the top of the league, albeit with a very London focus. Tottenham, Arsenal, and because we're nostalgic, Chelsea and United at the bridge. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. World Soccer Talk Podcast. Let's start trickling our way down the table. We talked about the one versus two battle in the first segment of the show. I think we'll go ahead and talk about Chelsea United here just to be nostalgic and acknowledge the fact that there are a ton of Chelsea United fans, not only in the world, but listen to this podcast. So let's go ahead and jump into this, even though neither of these teams are really a factor in the title race. John Terry's last game against Manchester United had had some emotional value for that. Uh, Jesse Lingard scoring the first goal, Diego Costa in stoppage time. Overall, Kartik, a good performance by Manchester United that was kind of undone by a young player's mistake at the end. Yeah, this is something that's interesting to me because I think Manchester United, the first 
half of the season. I'll, I'll take it till that draw with Leicester City in, in that uh, when Vardy broke the record. Manchester Manchester United were getting better results than their level of play. They were getting draws in games they should have lost. They were winning games they should have drawn. Now, and then they have that really rough patch over the festive period, over Christmas, when everybody said Von Hall's getting the sack and they were losing games. Now, I think in the last month, starting with the game against Swansea, and, and and culminating tonight uh, today, uh, going through the Liverpool game. Although the Liverpool game, I guess, could fit the pattern of the first half of the season. But taking that Liverpool game out of it, their performances have been better than their results. So games they should have won, like today, they draw. Games they sh- they, they should have uh, lo- uh, drawn, they've lost, S- like the Southampton game. A- and I think it's it's one of those things that we see over 38 game seasons where it uh, it evens out over time. So the results aren't any different for United. They haven't been different all season. However, the performances are getting better. We're seeing better play from Wayne Rooney. I thought Juan Mata was better in that number 10 role today mm-hmm. until he got pulled off. Lingard is a, is a certain upgrade over De- Memphis Depay. Uh, miles better. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I seriously have not heard his name in two months. Right. We probably haven't talked about him in any yeah. uh, way, shape, or form on this show since September. So he's a massive upgrade, as it turns out. The This is a lesson, though, for... In this era of big spending, TV money, sometimes the answers at your club lie within your own system, your own academy. There was no need to spend all that money on Memphis. They had Lingard, and he's performing at a much higher level now consistently than Memphis ever Mm -hmm. did. Martial has gotten back to a pretty, pretty good level. So... I like the way United's playing, but they didn't get the result, and ultimately uh, Costa made them pay, and Chelsea is, is finding ways to get draws uh, in games that they really don't deserve draws in. Yeah, you know, let's talk about that in a second, because I think uh, we're going to switch to your favorite topic here, Kartik, on both sides of this, because uh, the specter of Jose Mourinho still looms large over both of these sides. Rumors picking up this week, and this is a little bit disconcerting to me, because I'm not seeing the reporting to necessarily support this. People are starting to assume that Jose Mourinho is just going to be at Manchester United this summer you see your fans talk about this you I read on a Chelsea blog yesterday how they're just assuming that Jose is going to migrate with Pep up to Manchester this summer are are you under the assumption that that's just a given at this point well that's going to really bother Pep because I I, I mean he can't stand <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that that's going to be sp- <laughs> now I'm rooting for this to happen I didn't care before yeah, now I want not, this to happen that's that wasn't part of the deal oh, I mean gonna, he can still back out on that that happens wow that's going to be spectacular I can't yeah. even think about that that's like I mean, that's like if both of them went to the Milan team at the same time. Or yeah, this is that could be amazing because we know that that's the uh, that's a personal rivalry and that uh, that's amazing. Mourinho has been very effective at goading uh, Guardiola into saying <laughs> some things that Guardiola, who's generally very controlled and image conscious, doesn't say about other managers or other uh, in other circumstances. So, mm-hmm. uh, which is Jose's talent, right? He has a talent for that in provoking uh, these sorts of reactions. No, we haven't seen any reporting on this. Louis Van Hall today after the match very angry reporters who asked him the question threw it back at the reporter what if i were to uh, broadcast that you're getting the sack in the morning i don't blame him just answering the same question over and over again like at least wait a couple of weeks or wait for something new to happen i mean have you talked to ed woodward have you talked to the glazer family and the reporters they haven't yeah at the same time you suspect that the reporters only asking these questions to get the exact kind of response they got to get today to see if van hall will erupt or uh, crack or say something stupid and and that way it's kind of like this um i don't know this faustian bargain like we're both 
both sides are doing stupid no things. analysis of Manchester United's no. play. I mean, no. we're, we do it on this show, but other places, it's all about, well, is he going to get sacked after this game? Mourinho's coming in. And I, I think uh, it, it's a uh, – and, and even today, he said, well, what about Fergie's first few seasons? Von Hall might be in his mind thinking, rationalizing – a scenario in which he stays in this job, which <laughs> I don't think he's going to stay in the job past the summer. But as Robbie Musto here in the States on NBC pointed out after the broadcast, uh, there's no need to rush into Mourinho from his perspective that uh, there will be managers available after the European Championships. Absolutely. International managers who might want to come back to the club level, uh, even a guy like Conte maybe at, in Italy, mm-hmm. uh, a manager like that who uh, will be available for Manchester United. So I why was it to Mourinho when you've got, you've got a, a whole six months to play out? I just can't believe they missed out on Ancelotti. It just seems like the one person that is so perfect for that scenario. And then they, they let him go to Bayern, although that would have entailed firing Louis van Hall earlier. But now it seems like that would have been worth the risk considering all the – we're starting to see managers kind of slot into places where they're going to land. I think the one exception here is that I think it'd be very interesting if Manchester United then went and got Manuel Pellegrini because I also think he'd be a good fit for them too. Uh, so let's. So the more the more the assumption now is that Pellegrini might go to Chelsea. That seems to think people. Yeah, I, I think I like him going to Valencia more than I like him going to Chelsea for some reason. Although I think both of those are would be good fits for him. I, I think Pellegrini's going to have a lot of options. Um, let's talk about the other side of Mourinho's life. Let's talk about Chelsea. Chelsea is not losing games at this point they also don't look very good I think you can say that they've kind of stemmed the bleeding but the patient isn't exactly recovering as quickly as people would have wanted him to um what does this say about the move to fire Mourinho Kartik there hasn't been this big turnaround big turnaround with anybody but Diego Costa yet you can still kind of see that maybe they just needed to get rid of Mourinho just to stabilize yeah, Fabregas, I think, has played better. He, he, and he was so, he, and he was so pro Mourinho too. That's the thing. He he went out of his way to say that he he didn't want Jose to be fired. He wasn't the rat that people thought he was. Right. Uh, but Fabregas and Costa, are two players, uh, Costa dramatically. We can have that conversation. Do you think suspiciously improved? Well, that's what I was. Because I mean, that's say. what we're starting to hear from people. We're starting to hear that. There's lots of speculation online, even match commentators saying that uh, it may just be as simple as Heating being a more attack-oriented manager this, that, that this, plays to the strengths of a single strike. Maybe. This is so bad, Kartik. We're really – people are starting to, uh, without proof, call Diego Costa probably the worst thing you can call a player. I think probably the worst thing you can call a player is somebody that actually hurts other players intentionally. Maybe the second worst is somebody that's willing to compromise other people's jobs. And that's what they're they're saying about Diego Costa, that essentially he intentionally played poorly so so Jose Mourinho would be fired. Yes, and I, I don't I don't really believe that's the case. Now, is he maybe more enthusiastic about coming to training every day with Goose Heating and, mm-hmm. and then uh, playing in matches? Yes, but that, that happens in every dressing room. There's a manager that's lost that dressing room or has uh, said some of the things that Jose Mourinho said publicly about his players. So, yeah, clearly Costa is giving a greater effort for, uh, for Heating, but I don't think that that meant he wanted Mourinho, necessarily was trying or had some sort of master plan to get uh, Mourinho fu- uh, sacked. Uh, the thing I will say about the about Chelsea's uh, performances they continue to be a bad team just like we're saying the, the table doesn't lie anymore Leicester are a good team they're the best team in this league Chelsea are one of the worst teams in this league the table doesn't lie and I have to say given the circumstances around Mourinho the 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 vibe in the dressing room 
Chelsea would have been right in the uh, square in the middle of this relegation battle had they not sacked him. Yeah. They haven't picked up results the way they wanted to under Heating. I know when Heating got named manager, a lot of Chelsea supporters uh, were telling me, oh, you know, we, we, we're not going to make Champions League, but we're still going to make Europa League. We're, we're going to surge up the table. Hasn't happened, but they've stabilized. They're not mm-hmm. going to get relegated now. And another manager comes in next year and, and starts off. The more we see Chelsea play Kardik, the more I like the theory that we talked about a little bit at the beginning of the season, that Chelsea just does not have good players right now. That for two years, Jose Mourinho, I think we all acknowledge for his abrasiveness, is a very accomplished and very good manager, at least for a short period of time. For two years, he was able to paper over those cracks. And in a Premier League that's weakening, it seems like right now, is maybe in a little bit of a wane before it eventually takes its money and builds again, he was able to claim a title. But then this year, he just wasn't able to do it. It was just too much. The age just got to where the age and lack of quality in the team just got to where he couldn't do it. And then he's just not the manager you want to try to guide a team through those struggles. I and think their that- inability for so many years to, to, to get a second striker. Since Nicholas Anelka left to go to China now four or five years <laughs> ago, they haven't had a second striker. They had that- Fernando Torres. Do you remember how good he was? Yeah, I, I mean, but it's just been one bad uh, buy after another. Yeah. One uh, half uh, Now, that was an over, overpriced buy, but even when they've gone on the cheap with Dembaba or Lok Remy, it hasn't worked. So when Costa was in that dip in form, uh, which again, I, I mean, I don't want to get – we're not getting conspiratorial. I don't think he was uh, intentionally trying to get Mourinho sacked. But when he was in that dip, they didn't have another striker to play. We talked a lot about Chelsea-Manchester United because the other two games we want to talk about in this segment, there really isn't a lot to talk about. Let's start with Arsenal. Uh, a lot of people looking for them to rebound after a tough stretch here, one that saw them come into the weekend in fourth place. 2-0 win at Bournemouth. Goals in the 23rd and 24th minute from Metsut Ozil and a really nice finish from Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. So let's answer the implicit question here, Kartik. Are you convinced enough by this performance to say that Arsenal is ready to, to rebound? No. <laughs> we'll find out a lot about them next week. They're playing the best team in the league. They're playing them at home. They're one of two teams that's defeated Leicester City this season, but based on this performance and the last six or seven uh, data points we have, I, I have no reason to believe. I'm not, I know we don't make our predictions till Wednesday, but I have no reason to believe Arsenal will beat Leicester next yeah. week. I, I haven't seen anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, the only reason that we have to believe that Arsenal will beat Leicester is what Arsenal did against Leicester earlier this season at the King Power Stadium, and you have to balance that against what we know of these teams now. Uh, another North London team, one that has been playing much better than Arsenal, arguably playing as good as Leicester right now, as well as Leicester right now. Uh, Tottenham with a 1-0 win over Watford. Such a weird game, Kartik, because it didn't didn't seem like Watford came out to play. Three de- three defensive midfielders in the middle of the formation to start this. They dropped Troy Deeney, only played Odion Agalu up front. They didn't have a shot on target this whole match. Spurs had nine, eventually Kieran Trippier scoring in the second half. It, it just seemed like one of those goals that eventually, once you give a team enough room, they're going to create an opportunity like that, and, and Tottenham did. Yeah, Kiki Sanchez-Flores went to a, a kind of a, a negative system in this match because of the danger from Spurs midfield. I completely understand why he did it. The Dini-Igalo partnership, he didn't want to break up. But what resulted was uh, by dropping Dini, Igalo wasn't getting those balls. He wasn't getting the guy to hold up play who serves as kind of – and we've talked about this before with Watford. Even though it's a 4-4-2 on paper, Dini can drop into midfield and kind of play as a target – number nine and a half or whatever you want to call it, a target number 10 that you play through and, and Igalo can run off. So they had no attacking impetus at all. The thing I really like about this now is you're seeing Pochettino able to rotate players. They're still alive in three competitions. Mm-hmm. Trippier comes in uh, for Kyle Walker. You've seen Davies come in for Rose, Rose Davies, that, that, that uh, switch. Uh, you've seen Tom Carroll come in. 
and they continue to get results. They continue Absolutely. to look good in the process. This team is deeper than people thought. They didn't spend the kind of money they normally do. And it was such a healthy sign for Spurs that instead of the panic we used to have in January with uh, Redknapp trying to make an offer for this one and that one and <laughs> Levy vetoing it and Llorente and Aguero, all these guys that Spurs almost bought before they ended up in, in other destinations or tried to buy. Willian was another one. They Pochettino says, I like my team to Levy. Levy's like, I trust you. You, you've earned my trust based on the results. I've never had a season this good since we've been in the Premier League or since the Premier League began. Uh, you don't want to buy anyone? We're not going to do anything. Spurs' calmness in the transfer window showed me a lot about where this this club is headed because mm-hmm. we have never seen a transfer window with so little drama from Spurs. Yeah, we can do a whole show on Spurs because not only has the depth become admirable, they, they rotated out their fullbacks and their wingers this weekend. Uh, not only are they challenging for a title, but during this weird situation, when you look at that team, it's hard to pick out any players that you would say are definitely going to leave or definitely get And coached. that was the point I was going to make ju- just now, Richard, was that there is this assumption that Pochettino... Real Madrid will want him. Manchester United will want him. Chelsea will want him. But the reason you would leave Spurs in the past was because they always sell their best players. Berbatov, Carrick, Modric, uh, uh, Bale, obviously. Bale being the most prominent one. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like Spurs need to do that anymore. It looks like he can keep this core together. And their core is younger and potentially better than any of the teams I mentioned, including Real Madrid. It's a younger core than Real Madrid. It may not be better. certainly better than Manchester United or Chelsea. There's really no reason for Pochettino to leave. Hmm. Well, everybody, we're going to go ahead and take our break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Real Madrid, the German League, the Spanish League, update you on Europe before we move to the next section of the table, talk about Southampton, West Ham, and talk about the walkout at Liverpool. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Over to Europe briefly, and we start in Germany, where those powerful, invulnerable Bayern Munich were held to a nil-nil at Bayer Leverkusen, a match that saw both teams combine for only two shots in the first half of the game. Conceivably, that result left the door open for powerful, only slightly more vulnerable Borussia Dortmund to trim Bayern's league lead to six. But they were also held to a nil-nil this weekend, and that one at Hertha Berlin, a team who kept hold of third place in the Bundesliga and are now six games unbeaten. Karte? I have to mention on, on the Dortmund game that 17-year-old Christian Pulisic, uh, one of our great hopes in American soccer, American football, whatever you want to call it, uh, got a, a run-in, a shift in that game up top uh, as Interesting. a striker, which he's not. Uh, but uh, after after Ramos got subbed out, he uh, he played okay. I mean, he didn't get as many touches as we'd like, but he's one of the great hopes for American soccer, and he's already worked his way into the first team at uh, at Dortmund. Uh, it made his debut the previous week, incidentally. And of course, there's another prominent young American that was playing on the other team, uh, John Brooks, one of the, maybe the best defender we have in the pool right now, at least after this last couple yeah, games. Yeah, one of the that two, way. two or three best players the U.S. has, probably. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're getting to that point. Um, elsewhere in Germany, a little bit farther down the table, it was kind of a weird stellar weekend for the next level of clubs in the league, the ones right behind Germany's big two. Uh, beyond Hertha and Bayer, who got good results against the league's Titans, there was Schalke. Inconsistent, agonizing reputation as being this unpredictable team. Schalke got a 3-0 win over a Wolfsburg team that is kind of in free fall right now, but Schalke is now in fourth place, the league's last Champions League spot. It's a bit of a head scratch 
dispatcher of that position because Schalke is that inconsistent side that was kind of in turmoil earlier this year, but they still have the talent to hold down that spot if they can bring things together. But just behind them, Bayer's only a point back, and they're even with a Gladbach team that throttled Werder Bremen 5-1 on Friday. So Gladbach's not going anywhere either. Even a little step down from that, not to be too Bundesliga-centric here, there's Mainz. Mainz is in seventh place right now, or fighting for the league's last Europa League spot, and they got a 1-0 win on the road against Hanover. Although there's a bit of a economy out there, Hanover have now lost six in a row, and they look like they're finally destined to drop down to the second division. I, I, have, I have to say this. I sat through several press conferences with Brainrader over the winter break, uh, the Schalke manager, thinking he was a dead man walking because uh, things weren't even in the winter break didn't go well, and Hovedis got injured. And it seemed Schalke was uh, went into that winter break seventh or eighth, and and they weren't playing well. And now they're back in the Champions League position. So that league is very competitive beyond the top two teams. However, first and second in that league are both locked in. Uh, there's an eight-point gap between first and second. There's a 10 or 12-point gap between yeah. second and third. So it's not that compelling. But uh, it, it does show that there's a lot of movement from three to eight. Mm-hmm. Let's go over to Spain where Barcelona entered the weekend off a of midweek Copa del Rey drubbing of Valencia 7-0. On Sunday, though, their tanks were a little bit empty as the holders only had a Levante own goal to show for themselves going into stoppage time. Luis Suarez, however, scored his league-leading 20th goal of the season to double the Blaugrana's lead, giving the leaders a 2-0 win on the road. Elsewhere, Atletico rebounded from last week's disappointment against Barcelona with a 3-1 win over Ibar, while Real Madrid, with with a little more trouble than expected against relegation in Battle Granada, came out of the weekend with a 2-1 result. They stay four points back of the lead. In third place, Atleti is one point better. They're in second. Barcelona is still safe at the top, and they still have a match in hand. As far as the big story in Spain, there's Gary Neville, who all eyes have turned to after Valencia's midweek loss. Another huge disappointment this weekend for Gary Neville. On the back of last weekend's loss against relegation battled Sporting Gijón, Valencia has lost again to Real Batiste this weekend, another 1-0. Uh, even in the face of that, sources have told the Guardian Sid Lowe that there are no plans to dismiss Neville right now, despite Valencia still winless in league under him. Kartik, it uh, has not been a good couple of years for English coaches in Spain. No, it hasn't, although David Moyes showed some signs at Santander uh, and he it just went very bad this season for him, and he was dismissed quickly. And there are quick quicker triggers. Believe it or not, fans who watch English football may not believe this, but in Spain and Italy, managers get sacked a lot quicker than yeah. they do in England. And Moyes actually did okay last season and, and showed some promise, and maybe we thought, okay, he, he, he can hack it long term. Neville has never gotten out of the gate, so it's not. I don't even think they're comparable situations. Uh, and again, that's the difference between a guy like Moyes. Yes, it didn't go well at Manchester United, but his Everton record speaks for itself. His record at Preston, and a guy in Gary Neville who has never managed before. Yeah. And in Moyes' defense, it's not like Sociedad has leapt up the table without no, him. No, no. In fact, in fact, I think they avoided relegation last year largely because he was their manager. So uh, he, he got results against Real Madrid. Did he get a result against Barcelona last yeah, year? Yeah, that was the uh, that was the game where Neymar and Messi both started on the bench and sp- sent the team into that temporary spiral where people thought Luis Enrique was going to get fired. That's right, yeah. But so Mo- Moise uh, beat both uh, the big guns last season, whereas uh, uh, Neville, he got fortunate to get that draw against Real Madrid, although they were down to 10 men, and then got absolutely humiliated by Barca midweek in the Copa del Rey semifinals. Mm-hmm. There is a second leg to play in that. I mean, I, I can't <laughs> imagine how bad it's going to be. Yeah, I I mean, it, for on one hand, it could be... 
it could be a chance for some measure of redemption for the team. But then they went out this weekend and they got shut out again. They, they're not scoring goals. They're not winning games. They're not even drawing games anymore. It looks really bad there. And they hadn't just dismissed a coach. You would say that Gary Neville was a dead man walking. Who knows what they're going to do now? Let's jump back to the Premier League. Kartik, our players of the week. I'm going to go ahead and go first. And I'm going to stay focused on the marquee matchup of the week. Such a great performance by Leicester. There are two or three players you could pick out here. I think even somebody like Jamie Vardy, his contributions are becoming a little bit overlooked because he's not getting onto the score sheet as often, although he did against Liverpool, obviously. He's still winning so many balls and creating chances up top. But I'm going to go with uh <laughs> the person that's obvious if you look at the score sheet. I'm going to go with Robert Huth. I thought the team had a very good defensive performance and not to diminish West Morgan's contributions to that. I thought Robert Huth was very good there. And you get a central defender scoring two goals, uh, being that dangerous on set pieces, taking advantage of Martin DeMichelis. I thought that uh, he had a player of the week caliber performance. That's interesting. Okay, so that takes Huth away from me. I've still got Mares on my list, Vardy, Okazaki, Conte, and Wes Morgan, all Leicester <laughs> players. So I'm going to go with Mares. Uh, just uh, what a maestro he's become. I mean, I can imagine the kind of adjectives and, and calls we'd have from Marie Hudson on BN if he were playing in Spain. I mean, this guy... Mm. Is a maestro now on the ball, especially when he ends up being uh, isolated against uh, defenders like Otamendi, who aren't good one-on-one uh, man-marking defenders, right? But it's a uh, it's become really a joy to watch the guy. And we thought, well, he had hit a dip. He missed those two penalties in successive games. Now think about where Leicester would be in the table if he had made those penalties. Uh, but he he's just been incredible, and he's getting he gets his teammates involved. I also want to point out uh, Vardy had that incredible strike midweek, but it was the long ball from Mares that was perfectly placed right into space where he knew Absolutely. Vardy would, would run that set up that uh, wonder goal, which uh, to me is the second best goal of the season behind Deli Ali's goal against Palace a few weeks ago. The understanding between Vares, uh, between Mares, Vardy, and Okazaki and Albrighton, those four players in particular, unbelievable. Uh, it's something we haven't seen in the league, and I think I've said this before on the show since the early days of Mourinho at Chelsea when you had Damian Duff and Robin and uh, and, and Drogba and Lampard th- those four making similar runs and similar movements and again, we mentioned this before, it's just such a testament to a coach's ability to instill some belief in a team. And maybe it'll force other teams to reconsider how they're spending their money because it's not like Leicester is going out and making a ton of big buys, but they've made targeted buys at modest fees and have dramatically improved their club. Kartik, let's go ahead and talk about some of the games that we haven't touched on yet. And, you know, going over this segment before we started recording again, I think we realized we didn't have enough time because subtly in these next three games, there's a lot to talk about. Even if there wasn't a lot of action at St. Mary's and Southampton's 1-0 win over West Ham, Maya Yoshida getting kind of a surprise start as Ronald Koeman went to a three-man central defense, scored in the ninth minute. Vincent Wanyama sent out shortly after halftime. West Ham only really coming into the game at the end and Southampton running their winning streak well unbeaten streak to five and they've won four of those games yeah Southampton playing very well this was a interesting tactical wrinkle from uh, Koyman and it worked and I think uh this is the sort of thing that he's been able to do to keep that defense solid in the 18 months he's been there. They didn't, they didn't lead goals exactly under Pochettino, but they're even more stout defensively. They have a couple of blips this season where they've given up uh, three goals, but 
I take those matches out of it. Their defense is about as good as anyone uh, in the league. The other team that's been really good defensively is Pochettino's Spurs, but he uh, he has a, a more expensive uh, back back four uh, that he can call on. So he has one of Koeman's defenders from last year too. Right, right. He has Alder Morell, who's arguably the best central defender in in uh, England at this point. So you've got um, just some interesting tactical wrinkles. Unfortunately, this game was marred again by Wanyama getting sent off. Uh, this is the third time. It was an unnecessary challenge. It was stupid. It was reckless. My understanding is, even though his previous sending offs were second yellows, because this was violent conduct, he could be suspended for as many as five games. Hmm. Well, yeah, Southampton has some new depth at that position. We saw that Ward-Prowse and Oriel Romeo started on the bench this weekend, but there isn't really a like-for-like for Juan Yama there, and particularly the way that Koeman has been setting up, that destructive presence in the middle, it's just not, you just can't throw on Oriel Romeo and expect that all to be replaced. Right, you lose that kind of ball-winning defensive stoutness, but Romeo is a, a player that's positionally very well, does well, and is a good two-way player. Yeah. We saw him uh, perform very well when he came on this weekend and almost set up a goal for Charlie Austin with a very nice piece of skill. Uh, let's talk about West Ham here for a second. West Ham is a team, one reader reminded me last week that we tend to pass over a little bit. It's it's almost as if anytime they're in a marquee matchup, there's another matchup that weekend that forces our attention somewhere else. They're still sixth in the league, Kartik. Unfortunately, now that we're talking about them, it's after a loss. And it's after another performance similar to the Newcastle one where they looked so poor at the beginning of that match where they just didn't seem to get out of the blocks quickly in this one. They've had a few games like this even in the first half of the season where and it may have coincided with Paye's injury. So this is the first time since he's been fit that they've had a couple of matches like this. But they they didn't come out of uh, second gear this entire match, it seemed. Very slow to the ball, slow in reading the game. Uh, there's more depth in this West Ham team than a lot of teams in the league. So Billage t- typically has selection headaches, uh, and he... he uh, seems to have made some mistakes in this match. And he, he tried to remedy it quickly. And it was nice to see Andy Carroll back from injury. So that gives him another option going forward. There were certain op- opponents, particularly a team that was playing the way Southampton was in this game where Carroll mm-hmm. could be useful. But it didn't um, it didn't pan out for West Ham. So this is an unfortunate uh, defeat for them. Another person that we saw come on late, Emmanuel Emaniki, the 28-year-old Nigerian striker. Deadline, I believe it was the deadline day that he was brought in from Turkey. Uh, he made an appearance for West Ham late in this one. Let's go to Liverpool-Sunderland, where there's a lot to talk about in the game in this one. And I almost regret passing over the fact that Liverpool gave up a two-goal lead. And we saw Firmino have a very good performance, scoring the first goal and sec- setting up the second one. But all attention around this game, Kartik, was reg- was focused on the stands where Liverpool fans had organized a walkout in the 77th minute to protest a new ticket pricing scheme, one that'll see some tickets next year uh, cost £77 per match for some of the Liverpool faithful. Kartik, this is actually a pretty complex story, particularly if you read uh, Ian Eyre's response to the news of the protest. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it's unfortunate the uh, the situation where ticket prices in England are astronomical. We were just talking about the Bundesliga, right? And and I, I think uh, the most expensive tickets in the Bundesliga are probably cheaper than the cheapest decent seats in in the Premier League. And unfortunately, also because uh, it's league rules that you have to uh, give you have to sell away tickets for the same prices prices home tickets. If you're a Liverpool supporter and you're going to Arsenal. 
you're going to pay the highest ticket prices in Europe, even though your club charges less for tickets um, and, or Leicester City supporter, or Manchester City supporter, whoever. So uh, there are all these issues with the ticket prices. I have to say, though, the Liverpool situation is a little complicated because they're redeveloping that ground. They're rebuilding Anfield. And it's there are other clubs that are charging astronomical ticket prices who have inherited stadiums who have gotten um, uh, uh, land deals that have gotten uh, a situation where uh, they're making money off of other uh, projects like Arsenal specifically is off of the former Highbury uh, site. Liverpool is in a position where they have to fund the rebuilding of their ground on the current ground on that property. It's a little more complicated than it is in other places. I generally sympathize with the supporters here. I'm not saying I don't in this case either, but the Liverpool situation is more complicated than uh, than just the straight high ticket prices in some other places. Yeah, I found Ian Ayer's comments persuasive. He noted that uh, under the new ticket pricing plan, I believe it was 45% of the tickets are actually going down. And he talked about how he personally had made a concerted effort with the committees that uh, developed this pricing plan to note that they needed more cheaper tickets so that younger people could come to the game more often without spending as much. And part of that sacrifice is to raise tickets for some people. And he also noted that this 77 uh pound price, the inspiration for the 77th minute walkout, only affects 0.5% of the total capacity for next year's games. I, 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 find, I find this... I need to, I need to read that response yeah. because I'm, I've already been predisposed, even though I'm generally with supporters and fan movements like this, I've, gen, I've been predisposed to be more balanced on this one because I know the situation Liverpool's in with Anfield. It's different than the situation other clubs are in. And uh, in Arsenal specifically, since Arsenal is the poster child for high ticket prices. And I loved what the Bayern supporters did earlier in the year for that Champions League match mm-hmm. uh, when they went to Arsenal. The uh, But that that's very interesting. That's very persuasive to me also. So they're making the game more accessible to newer fans, and, which I like. Yeah, and at, at the other end, because they don't want to lose revenue. And there's another discussion to have on that, because part of supporters' claims here is that the new television packages mean you should be able to offer cheaper tickets. But... There's more to this story than just the face value. And the fact that Liverpool fans have pinned so much of the media or so much of the messaging of this on that 77 number, I find a little bit disingenuous because that 77 number does not accurately describe the scope of the ticketing plans. If in, and that's if in-airs numbers are right. Again, he said half of a percent or one out of every 200 tickets at Anfield would be affected by that price. So I, I'm just having trouble getting behind the populism of using that number. Um, lot, of, lot to talk about with that game, but in this segment, still want to talk about the other half of uh, Merseyside. Everton, very strong result, 3-0 at Stoke, three first half goals, just jumping on a Stoke team that... Um, Gave one of their worst performances of the year, Kartik. Early penalty kick given up, converted by Lomelu Lukaku. Uh, very poor uh, possession, leading to Aaron Lennon's goal that closed uh, the scoring. Overall, I think positive signs for Everton, but maybe more worrisome signs for Stoke. Yeah, Stoke without a number of regulars uh, on that back line, just and in defensive midfield, looked a mess. And they... they, they uh, have now had consecutive games this week where they've conceded three goals and Everton scores goals, but they weren't able to, uh, to, to really 
pressure Everton. This this was a one-sided game. Everton had a 3-0 against Newcastle earlier in the week, which wasn't so one-sided, honestly. That mm-hmm. was a much more balanced game. The, the scoreline flattered uh, the Toffees. This game did not, and, and I felt like uh, there just wasn't a whole lot uh, going forward for uh, uh, for uh, Mark Hughes in this game. He threw on uh, uh, Stephen Ireland. He threw on Peter Odenwenge, <laughs> some you know old-timers at, at, yeah. at that club. Well, Ireland is not an old-timer at that club. He, he's a Ireland's player, like a Mark Hughes security blanket. Yeah, yeah, right. He's a Hughes player, but uh, guys that you wouldn't expect to see on this new quote Stoke Colonna side, and both those guys were uh, were poor, quite frankly, and, and weren't able to produce anything. So it was a pretty humbling game for Stoke. Now on on the Everton side, that's consecutive victories. They're beginning to see uh, the 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 light at the end of the tunnel. They're beginning to climb back up the table. They're now in in eighth. The goal all along for Everton has been to make it to Europe this season. They're not going to make it to Champions League. But with this team, they've got to get to Europa League uh, one way or another. They're now out of the League Cup. That was a missed opportunity, losing that mm-hmm. semifinal to Manchester City. Uh, they're still uh, alive. Uh, they are still alive in the FA Cup, right, I think? Well, I can't remember, to be honest <laughs> with you. Tells you how much I've been focusing on the FA Cup. But now they are, depending on who wins the Cups, they are potentially only two points out of a European spot. A, a worst case scenario, they're only six points out of a European spot. So they might still make it to Continental play next season. Yeah, if you had to bet on them, or they're four points behind West Ham, two points behind Southampton, I, I wouldn't blame somebody for thinking Everton would overtake one of those two teams to make the top seven. Let's go ahead and take our last break right now. When we come back, we'll update you on the weekend in the championship. We'll give you our top fours, and we'll talk about the remaining matches in this, the 25th round of action in the Premier League. Stay with us. When last we talked about the championship, Steve Bruce and Hull City had claimed a somewhat improbable lead on Middlesbrough, the team that had led the second tier for most of the last two months. This weekend, however, that lead tightened up, and thanks to surges from Burnley and Brighton, there's some new uncertainty surrounding the championship's top two spots. Let's start at Burnley, where Hull put their one-point league lead and four-match winning streak on the line on Saturday, but both of those were undone in the 77th minute when Sam Vokes gave Sean Dyke's team a 1-0 win, a result that could have seen them pass Middlesbrough for second place. That's because at Middlesbrough, a struggling Blackburn team had claimed a 1-0 lead, with Sunderland loaning Jordan Gomez putting Rovers on the cusp of an improbable result. But in the 79th minute, David Nugent saved Itor Karanka's team, their proverbial blushes, scoring the equalizer that allowed Burrow to preserve a 1-1 result, as well as move back even at the top of the table. So here's how that looks. Hull, thanks to their goal difference edge, is in first with 56 points, but they've played 29 games. Middlesbrough, with the same point total, has only played 28 times, and Burnley, only one point back of the leaders, has already played 30 times this season. Further down, Brighton continues to recapture their early season form, moving within three points of the top with Friday's 3-0 win against Brentford. Derby's winless streak is at seven after their 1-1 draw at Fulham. They're five points back at the top and Sheffield Wednesday is moving deeper into the playoff spots a valuable 2-1 win at fellow playoff hopefuls Birmingham leaves them on 50 points and they're unbeaten now in six back to the Premier League Kartik time for our top fours and you have the honors okay on form I'm gonna go Leicester Spurs Southampton 
Maybe uh, Everton. <laughs> I can't believe big exhale. Sized Everton. Yeah, I. I uh, yeah, I guess I'll go Everton four. Uh, end of the season. I'm going Leicester one, Spurs two, Manchester City, uh, Arsenal three, Manchester City. Four. Hmm. Yeah, we have pretty similar lists uh, as far as form is concerned. I have the same top three in the same order that you do, Leicester, Spurs, and Saints. And then it took me way too long to think of a fourth team. And I ended up going with Manchester City just because, one, the rest of the league doesn't have great form. And two, Manchester City's only recent loss is to the best team in the league and the best team on my form list. So I kind of gave pulled City. Everton out of thin air. Right? Maybe well, I, I wanted anybody but City considering the result this weekend. But I guess part of the premise here is that City weren't so terrible. Leicester was good. So that swayed me a little bit too. As far as end of the season, uh, number four, I have Manchester City. And that hurts because I've been I've had City number one for most of the year, but I'm just so unconvinced by City's defense at this point that I'm putting them four in what I consider a pretty tightly packed four teams here. Uh, number three, Arsenal, and I have them there just because I believe in the number two team, Spurs, and then number one, Leicester City. I guess we'll know a lot more about this top four next weekend after Leicester visits Arsenal. Uh, Kartik, the three games that we haven't touched on yet. Let's start at the bottom of the table. Aston Villa 2-0 victory over Norwich. Villa now has eight points in their last five games. Reason to think that they can actually survive? Hmm. Uh, most <laughs> seasons, yes, because there's generally two, three, four teams that go into the tank at the end of the season and end up going down. This season, I just the teams that are near the bottom in, in the table are not. Uh, They're kind of giving Sunderland, each other points. I think, well, yeah, I, I mean, I think Sunderland uh, are are I. I'm intrigued by the purchases Allardyce has made. The results haven't come yet, but I think they're going to come because of the guys he's brought in from the continent. Now, again, uh, a lot of critics can say they may not acclimate to English football, but I'm already seeing signs from Kone uh, and from Kirchhoff that they well, have. And Wabi Krause had a assist Krause, on yeah, that. set up that goal, yeah. right. So these guys are already beginning to acclimate. Kirchhoff may be uh, really one of the best buys, uh, even though he was a washout at Bayern. Uh, he Allardyce is putting him in midfield, and, and it seems to be working. So uh, because of <laughs> oh that, my God, that, him and Catterall and, and Villa in midfield, Jesus, yeah. right? Yeah, well, that's a brick wall, right? <laughs> <You're> just, <laughs> it's a midfield Tony Pulis would love. Yeah, right. Um, although there, a guy like Kaziri would never be in a Pulis team. So yeah. um, there, there's. Um, so I just think that the teams above them, Norwich, that can be caught by Villa, and obviously they beat them here. I just think Sunderland, Newcastle, Swansea, Bournemouth, the teams ahead of them are not going to drop enough points. That having been said, credit to Remy Gard. He's kept it together. They got this result. They played well of late. And the reality is that they bought nobody in, in, the, in the window. And there were rumors uh, all week long that he was going to walk. Uh, Neil Ashton reported it on NBC the night of the transfer uh, deadline that, look, if uh, it's possible Gard will walk uh, this week because he didn't get any reinforcements, uh, team spirit has remained high. Hmm. Uh, let's move to Newcastle, West Brom. A good performance from Newcastle, although it was only a 1-0 victory. Keep going back to West Brom, Karchik. You and I are hitting the baggies hard because it just seems to be getting worse. Another match with no shots on target. This against a, a relegation and battle team. I was about to say fellow relegation and battle, but it's unclear that West Brom is really in this relegation picture. They're six points above the drop. They're playing as poorly as any team in the league, but that six points is is a pretty big gap, it seems like. It does seem like a pretty big gap. Can they draw their way out of trouble? If we think the number is 36, 37, 38, it looks like they'll get there yeah. uh, on 29 points. 
Now, having been said, the teams that are around them in the table, Chelsea is obviously better than them. Bournemouth is better than them. Swansea is better than them. Newcastle, who are five points behind them and beat them in this game, I think just on the surface of things should catch them. So who, who's to say that they don't get sucked in? Can't we just promote four teams from the championship? <laughs> yeah, and, and drop drop West Brom even if they're not 17. Oh, or just at least drop Pulis. Um, the final game we haven't talked about, Swansea versus Crystal Palace. Some good news here for both teams. Swansea has pulled their way out of the drop, so now these one-point results really are positives. Gilfie Sigurdsson with a, uh, I, I want to say a good goal here, but I think Wayne Hennessy could have stopped it. 13th minute free kick that just curved right inside the left post. Crystal Palace, scrappy goal from Scott Dan, got a result for a Palace team that's been in free fall lately. So in that respect, Kartik, I guess this is kind of a silver lining result for both sides. Oh, this is an important with Palace to get this point. They uh, they desperately need something. And Adebayor uh, played up top. He, he made a mistake, uh, which led to the free kick, which led to the Swansea goal. But he was he looked more active than uh, I remember Adebayor. Then again, at the beginning in clubs, he's more active, right? We've come Maybe to it's the hair. Maybe he's got some yeah. hair power going. Yeah, right, right. Uh, we hadn't seen him in a year. Yeah. He looks if, if people haven't seen uh, Crystal Palace play, Emmanuel Adebayor has hair down to the middle of his back right now, which is good. it's a good look. It's a strong look. <laughs> Uh, But uh, important point for Swansea, as you mentioned, I think what we're seeing for Swansea now is that they're getting results. They're 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 confident again. Uh, Sigurdsson is uh, is producing and the lack of having goals from the striker position, which has been the downfall for them this season, isn't hurting them as much. Now they're getting goals again from midfield. Will that last? I don't know. They still need to get about 10 more points to stay up. I think they will. Uh, I think Gudelin is a, is a strong enough manager. Uh, again, I don't know why he took this task on. It's kind of a thankless job, but uh, I think they're going to have enough to stay on. <laughs> Gudelin, another example of a manager bringing some tactics into England, having short-term success? Yeah. he was. A, if you watch him in Udinese, he was a really good tactical manager. And yes, he had Alexis Sanchez and some other guys that we Toto know Di Natale. Yeah, Dean Natale, well, Dean Natale, of course, but other guys that have moved on to, 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 to bigger clubs. But tactically, they were really sound. And yeah, it was a period when the Milan clubs were down. But uh, I, I think so much of Udinese's success those years were because of his management, or at least his uh, his tactical management. I don't know how he is in the dressing room or as a man manager, but uh, he, he's very, very good tactically. We're seeing it again now for Sunderland. Uh, some very kind of uh, for, formations and, and squad selections that make you scratch your head, but then it, it it comes out okay. Well, he's getting his best players on the field, and they've found a new, unique way to do that. We're seeing in the defensive phase, often Sigurdsson is their highest player, even though they're playing really just a midfield diamond, but they're splitting Routledge and IU wide. They're having them follow the fullbacks a little bit, and it looks weird, but it's working, obviously. They're unbeaten in their last four. I have claimed eight points from those games. Everybody, we don't have very much action midweek. If you're a Liverpool or West Ham, or if you're a West Brom fan, hats off to you. You do have action midweek with your FA Cup replays, but we're going to be coming back to you in midweek focused on the 26th round of action in the Premier League, where Leicester will continue to try to get their stranglehold on the Premier League when they go to the Emirates to face Arsenal. Until then, for everybody at the World Soccer Talk family, I'm Richard Farley. Kartik, enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. 
I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is LOZCAST, LawsCast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at WorldSoccerTalk.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.